Side Hustle Show 300. Five listeners who took action and are seeing awesome results. What's up? What's up? Nick Loper here. Welcome to the Side Hustle Show because... Submission. Now that's a bit of a problem. This may not be Sparta, but it is episode 300, and I promise it's a good one. I'm excited to feature five Side Hustle Show listeners who took action on specific ideas they heard on the show or read on the Side Hustle Nation blog and have turned that action into concrete results. So stay tuned to hear examples in content marketing, freelancing, e-commerce, and more. There's gold in the archives. These entrepreneurs are proving that and earning thousands of dollars in the process. Notes and links for this one are at sidehustlenation.com slash 300. And while you're there, I'd love to hear what action you've taken as a result of the show. Let me know in the comments or shoot me an email, nick at sidehustlenation.com. First up is Preston Lee, the founder of Milo.co, M-I-L-L-O dot C-O. It's a blog and podcast network for freelancers, and Preston actually shares several episodes that have directly impacted his bottom line. The first was episode 171 with Jason Zook, which talked about selling sponsorships. He's just a killer sponsorship salesman. That's always a model that's been interesting to me. But the idea of like selling it before the content was even there was really fascinating to me. And it was, I had heard that episode right at the time that I was about to launch our first podcast. And so I thought I'd try it out. I reached out to a few companies who I thought would be a good fit with the show. I explained to them what we were doing. I made some really bold promises, to be honest, uh, about what I thought we could deliver them. And they gave it a shot. And we ended up booking something like, over $4,000 in podcast sponsorships before we even aired a single episode. It was killer. Wow. That is awesome. So that's the, is that the freelance to founder podcast? Yeah. Freelance to founder. Okay. Four grand in sponsorships before an episode even aired. So what was that pitch like? Like, Hey, I'm thinking of creating this thing. Did you have the benefit of a blog audience at that point? Yes, totally. So in total transparency, we already had an audience that we were going to promote the podcast to okay. and a network of like friends and, and people we had asked to share the show with their network and that kind of thing. So all of these things I had set up ahead of time. And I think that's maybe a, a key takeaway is if you're going to pre-sell a sponsorship, you have to almost launch the thing that you're getting sponsors for as if it were a product launch or something that you just really need a lot of attention on. Okay. So that's part of the pitch. It's like, hey, I've got this existing yeah. audience you know, we've never done a podcast before, but they're at least used to reading my content. Yeah, totally. They trusted us. They knew our voice. And it was kind of an exciting thing. Like it was our first podcast. And so we were able to really go out with a bang and say, we're creating this cool new thing. We really think it's going to be fun. Be sure to subscribe here for updates and yada, yada. Cool. What did you price at per episode or per season? How did it work? We priced it out per episode, but my goal was to sell pre-sell the whole first season. So we we had eight episodes in the first season. It came out to, I guess, 500 bucks an episode. Although I think it was between two different sponsors. So like one sponsor did like 350 and one did maybe 200 or something. So it ended up being between five and 600 bucks an episode. Yeah. The next idea on Preston's hit list was lead magnet upgrades. And you may have heard these called tripwire offers, but the idea is to make a relevant low dollar offer after a new subscriber opts in for your list. This was inspired by Rosemary Groner in episode 268. She had like a 90 day boot camp, and you could either just follow along or you could follow along and fill out the workbook. And it was highly discounted. And what I love about what she did, which I have yet to experiment with, 
is she recouped all of her advertising spend using that one upsell. That's like sort of next on my list. But for now, what I've been able to do is just capture an email sign up with your typical lead magnet. It's just like a short, like 10 page ebook or something. But then I have a product that I typically sell it's like in our shop and available to buy for i think it's like 15 bucks and what i do is i send a follow-up email a couple days later to the people who opt into this freebie and say hey as someone who bought this thing i thought you might be interested in this other thing it's normally 15 dollars. you can get it for seven dollars or whatever and i'm always playing with the numbers so i'm not sure if that's exactly what it is right now but okay you know it hasn't been blow up success necessarily this year but it's made me a couple extra thousand dollars just by adding one follow-up email that took me maybe 15 or 20 minutes so it's been really cool okay so you do it in an email and not on the lead magnet thank you page I've tried both. I seem to get a little bit better response in the email, like a little further down the road. Okay. So we did have it on the thank you page, but people kind of bounced there, maybe because they already, they hadn't looked at the other thing that they opted in for yet. And so it felt like a lot. I don't know. Okay. Yeah. I mean, well, it's cool to test out both ways and see which one is generating better results. And like you said, the next level is, you know, the self-liquidating ad spend or even the profitable ad spend to drive traffic and and have people... right you know, yeah. pay for this thing after the fact. I think she was saying like, oh, 20% of the people buy it. Maybe that seems high. Maybe it wasn't that high. Whatever the numbers were, I feel like they were really good. Yeah, like it was, was not really an insig- insignificant percentage. <laughs> and so yeah. do you have that off the top of your head? Like what percentage of people take you up on the upgrade? I feel like when I checked, this was maybe a month or two ago, it was something like 11%. So okay. not insignificant, but definitely room for improvement. Yeah, that was a cool little incremental revenue stream. And it kind of, in a way, filters out the people on your list who are buyers versus everybody else. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, once someone has spent, you know, $7 with me, it's more likely they'll spend $59 or $129 or whatever I want to upsell them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gateway product. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And all the while adding value, right? That was like the whole point of that episode as well. It was like, this isn't just trying to cheat someone into spending money with you. This is like you're adding incremental value at a reasonable price. Yeah. The next item on we have on the list comes from Greg Hickman in episode 270, talking about improving your list health, your email list health by removing inactive subscribers, which is something of a controversial topic. In fact, Rosemary is against this because, you know, she was an inactive email subscriber herself when she got an email from Ruth about Elite Blog Academy, which totally changed her life. She's like, never delete people. You never know. But I'm (laughs) curious, and I I don't follow that advice. I do, you know, clean up the list uh, periodically. So tell me about the list cleanup process. To clarify, I actually don't remove people from my list either. But what I have found success doing, because I I think I agree with Rosemary on that, uh, you know, it's always worth keeping people who haven't explicitly said they don't want to hear from you, like hold on to them. But what I have done is I've, I've segmented my list so that like, for example, I'll send a weekly newsletter to our email list. I used to just send it to everybody, which was fine. But we were seeing, you know, like 8%, 9%, maybe 11% on a good day open rate. And so what I did was I actually segmented out and I I use MailChimp currently. So I used like their contact rating. So if they had, you know, three stars or more, and if they had like the first name field filled out and other criteria like their join date and just other criteria that sort of said to me, these are more active, more faithful subscribers, and they tend to open your campaigns and interact with your campaigns. So for a while, I sent to just those subscribers. So I did that for maybe six weeks or something. And then incrementally, I started adding back in some of these older subscribers who had not engaged with the campaigns as much. Okay, And 
bit by bit, I add them back in. And by the time I'm back up to my full list, we're getting 18 to 20% open rates on average, sometimes 22 to 25, like in really good campaigns, all with basically the same people. And I think what happened, I'm not a hugely knowledgeable on this, but I think what happened was our deliverability and engagement rates went up you know, for the email providers themselves, you know, like Gmail and that sort of thing. And it sort of sent them signals saying emails coming from this email address people want to receive in their inbox. And so there was fewer deliverability problems and that kind of thing. That's a really interesting experiment to say, like if my, if my open rates suffer, okay, I'm going to dial it back for a minute and just send to my most engaged subscribers, show the signals of like a really, really engaged newsletter list, 50, 60, 70% open rate or better, I imagine for those sends and then slowly trickle back in everybody else. Yeah, it was nuts. Yeah, exactly. We were getting like 60% open rates. And and as we dial it back, it just sort of slowly comes back down. But instead of coming back down to 11, it, it you know stops around 18 or 20. Okay. So, yeah, it was, it was really I good. may have to do that. So what I've been doing is sending to that engaged segment first to hopefully send the signal of like, hey, this is a really relevant email. And then an hour later, sending to everybody else. I might try it your way and see what happens too. That's cool. Obviously, like I probably lost some traffic and some money along the way. But in the end, you know, the end result is now I have a more engaged list and higher deliverability rates and that sort of thing. So it was worth the sort of short-term sacrifice for the long-term gain. And I'll probably have to do it again is my guess. So cool, cool, cool. Good. All right. The next point that I want to talk about comes from uh, Michelle Schroeder-Gardner in episode 257. We talked about affiliate marketing and her advice was to look at the content that's already performing and see if you can add affiliate offers or affiliate links to that content. Yeah. I have been doing this site as a side hustle for a long time, like eight years. And then I lost my job. And this was one of the first things that I did when I took the site full time is I knew I had neglected sort of affiliate partnerships and affiliate optimization, if you will, like putting affiliate links all over the site in places that it makes the most sense. So this is one of the first things that I did. I just figured out what content was performing the best. I figured out how to work in affiliate offers with decent returns into that content. And I watched and I tested and I swapped out links and I swapped out how we talked about them and where we put them in the content and that sort of thing. But we naturally wove them into the content itself. Again, this isn't like our biggest revenue driver, but it's been a few thousand bucks again this year just by adding a few links here or there in addition to, you know, the affiliate revenue we were already getting. So it's been been really good. Yeah. For those of you scoring at home, that's like four or five grand, not not even counting the podcast sponsorship. So that's right. that's awesome. Yeah. Do you have an example of like, okay, this article was ranking high. This was the affiliate link that I offer because I think sometimes like, well, there's no like Amazon product to link to and then and then I'm stuck. So what did you end up plugging in there? One of the highest ranking articles on our site is how to start a design business. There's 10 or 12 steps in there all about how to find clients and how to send an invoice and how to manage your finances and just everything that you could possibly need to just get started as sort of a freelance designer. And so obviously in there is client management, relationship management, and like invoicing. So we included, there's some sort of typical ones for our space, which is like freelancing and solopreneurship. FreshBooks is one. So we put, as an example, we put some FreshBooks links right into that content and immediately saw a lift. We put Bonsai in there as well, which is like an invoicing tool and immediately saw a lift. So yeah, there's an example. There's probably four or five, even just with those two affiliates that we just saw an immediate lift right away. That's awesome. 
Okay, thanks for clarifying on that. Because it's like, well, yeah, you yeah, know, sure. I'm going to link to I think right. Michelle talked about like an instant pot or something. It's like, well, that's not really relevant to mine. But like, there are affiliate offers for just about every niche. Just a matter of kind of maybe getting a little bit creative and and figuring those out. I mean, I think I identified a list of 60 or 70, and I even signed up for 60 or 70 affiliate programs. And then I just started putting links in places and seeing what was really driving the biggest return and came up with, you know, this 10 to 12. I'm trying to remember, they've been on your show. Someone talks about the core affiliate strategy. That's Rosemary. This is basically what this is. Is that Rosemary as well? So basically, yeah, I've identified 10 or 12 affiliates who really, really drive results for me. And those are the ones I focus on. And so it took some time to get to that point, but it definitely paid off. Yeah, that's the beauty of it. Like if you have content that's are, that's already ranking in Google, it's already getting traffic. Like it's so quick to test this stuff where it's like this steady stream yeah. of, of yeah. eyeballs are coming by this site. Like either they resonate with that or they don't. You could swap out something else. Exactly. Even stuff. Yeah, exactly. Because I have it in uh, in the Pretty Link plugin. And so I don't get you know super great reporting on it, but you could still see like how many people clicked on that. I haven't even talked about that for years and it's like got hundreds and hundreds of clicks. <laughs> and so right. I don't know who knows how many of those <laughs> converted or anything, but it's still cool to see like, oh, at least it's up there. Maybe, I, maybe that's a signal I got to swap out for a different program, but I really like Yeah. That. Well, and it's cool. You can see a lot of times in your affiliate program too, like they'll, they'll show you the top referring URLs. So you can see like, oh, this article has really shot up. Like ever since I put the link in this article, it now brings me an extra hundred dollars a month or something. Yeah. And so I like to do that. And, and and then I like to go in and say what similar articles, even though they may not get as much traffic, what similar posts could I go in and put these links in? Because I know people interested in this subject are likely to purchase this product. Yeah, there's so much, there's so much cool stuff you can do with, you know, once you have the, <laughs> once you have the content going. So speaking of content, Milo.co, excellent resource for freelancers. Definitely encourage you to check it out. Preston, thank you for joining me. Let's wrap this thing up with your number one tip for Side Hustle Nation. Well, thank you so much, man. I think my number one tip, given our conversation here, is just to try stuff. Like, don't be afraid to try things and you might fail, but you also might end up, you know, finding something that brings you a couple extra thousand bucks that didn't take you that long. So just keep experimenting, keep listening to shows like Nick's and applying as much as you can to just test and learn and uh, eventually you'll figure out the perfect formula for growing your business. Sounds good, man. We'll catch up soon. Okay, thank you so much. Next up is Flav Maderos, who was inspired by episode 216 on Merch by Amazon to start a t-shirt business. Merch is a print-on-demand service where you upload designs you think are going to sell, and Amazon does the rest. It's a really fun side hustle. Did you know that roughly half of Side Hustle Nation hasn't started their side hustle yet? If that's you, I get it. Starting and building a business is tough. It takes more than just an idea. There are tons of moving parts, and it's a bit like trying to assemble your airplane in the middle of takeoff. Thankfully, our sponsor, Taylor Brands, is helping Side Hustle Show listeners make that leap and make it all a lot easier. Their comprehensive platform guides you through every step, making sure you have everything you need all in one place. Think of it like your behind-the-scenes partner for things like LLC formation, licenses and permits, getting an EIN, setting up your business bank account, bookkeeping and invoicing, insurance, logos, trademark protection, and a lot more. Taylor Brands helps you handle it all seamlessly. And to get you started, Side Hustle Show listeners get 35% off Taylor Brands LLC formation plans when you use our link. That's taylorbrands.com slash side hustle. Taylor Brands, like a tailor for your clothes, T-A-I-L-O-R-B-R-A-N-D-S.com slash side hustle. Start your business journey today 
with the help of Taylor Brands. When you're hiring, it feels amazing to finally close out a job search and hit the ground running with your new hire. But what if you could get rid of the search part and just get matched with qualified candidates? Well, now you can with our sponsor, Indeed. It's simple. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. The matching and hiring platform is trusted by over 3.5 million businesses worldwide to connect with great talent faster. And 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. For my next hire, I'm using Indeed to tap into a talent pool of 350 million unique monthly visitors. And what else is cool is Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets. And how about this? Side Hustle Show listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show. Just go to Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I'd say about 30 shirts a week or so, Okay, uh, 30 sales a week there, and 30 to 40. That varies as far as the royalties are concerned, uh, but that translates to be typically 400 to 600 a month there. And then on Etsy, I got about that amount as well, about seven or 800. So at this point, uh, merch is making me anywhere between 1200 to 1500 monthly. I started off by asking Flav about his design skills, if there were any, and his design strategy. I have uh, kind of taught myself design. Started off with doing a few designs that I'm really not proud of. They're they were very bad, and that was <laughs> that's when I was like, there has to be a better way. I really this is not really my specialty. So what can I do? And I did a couple of things, Nick. I uh, outsourced and found a couple of designers that I um, uh, they're overseas. And what I do is I have them design some for me, and then to kind of supplement that so that I'm not having to purchase a lot of time or designs, I also kind of taught myself design utilizing a course on uh, Udemy, went on there and, and said, you know, well, let me teach myself. And I actually use Affinity Designer, not Photoshop, and uh, just seemed like a very easy platform and inexpensive. So for me, it ended up being a good route. So I design on there. And I also design some simple text-based designs, which actually sell very well. Uh, and I do that using Canva. Yeah, we tell people that we, you know, design most of our stuff in PowerPoint. And, you know, all of the actual designers who are listening are like, you know, just cringing at that, I'm sure. But it's like, yeah, these tools like Canva and WordSwag was another one that we used for a while, makes it super easy. The original merch guest that we had on Elaine said, okay, you can go down kind of like the evergreen shirts, like making shirts for dog lovers and yoga lovers. You can go after trending topics. And and that was kind of just post-election or post-inauguration. So she had a lot of like like Hillary and Trump shirts, she said it done well. Have you had particular strategy for filling those those slots of designs? Yeah, initially, uh, you hit it right on the head. Initially, for me, it was I was doing a lot of trending type designs because for, for two reasons. Number one, it ends up being kind of easy when you get started to, you know, if it's around Mother's Day, let's say, there's a lot of inspiration and things all over the place that can give you ideas for you know, mother's type design. So I started doing a lot of that. And sometimes you catch lightning in a bottle and you make a lot of sales. And I've done that. And it helps you in the Amazon world uh, kind of tear up since they have a tiering system. But however, I also like the evergreen design. So I I think really you want a good mix. Yeah. So the evergreen designs like can kind of 
be a smooth stream of sales versus like, well, Mother's Day, once Mother's Day is over, you're not going to be making very many Mother's Day sales. So one of the things that's been uh, tedious for us is just like the upload process to Amazon. Are there any APIs or like third-party services where you can like bulk upload shirts, but it's like, okay, you can upload your 10 designs for today. And it's like, well, just doing that, it's going to take 20 minutes, half an hour. It's kind of time consuming on top of coming up with the designs. I think there's no easy way around that. I mean, it is a tedious process. It's, you know, pour yourself a drink, put on some good music and just, you know, get ready to sit there and just have a tedious process of doing it over and over again, especially in my (laughs) case where I am on multiple uh, POD platforms. So I'm posting a lot of shirts to Amazon and then I turn around and I'm also putting them on Etsy. And by the time I'm done doing that, it's really, really boring at that time. But yes, they do have some tools out there that help with um, the bulk uploading process. It's really a copy and paste tool, more or less, than it is bulk uploading. But I think Amazon has some of that in the works, from what I hear, to do some bulk uploading. Are you doing anything on those lines like to make your listings stand out? Or is it just like, look, my time is mainly spent focusing on coming up with a clever saying or design and going to town with that? What a lot of people don't realize is that there's a lot of parts to doing uh, merch or any print on demands. And, you know, you need quality designs. You need to have the niche selection needs to be there, as we already talked about, whether it's trending or evergreen. And uh, you also need to have a good amount of keywords or else your designs are not going to be found. Anything you recommend for the keyword research side of it? Yeah, for keyword research, I uh, do recommend a program. It's called Merch Informer. They have a great website and blog about all things merch. And they have a great keyword tool right inside of it. It is a premium program, but it's, it's very worth it. I also use the, um, I believe it's the Neil Patel, the Uber Suggest tool or the Uber keyword tool that he has. And I think that's a phenomenal tool. It's using Google. But then again, if people are searching Google for a particular shirt, chances are they're also searching Amazon. Okay, interesting. Have you found now, (laughs) this is like people say this about like every single, you know, side hustle, but have you found that merch is saturated? Like, you know, after, you know, the, the minute after Trump tweets something, you know, there's a million shirts up with that saying or something like that? Like, have you found have you found that to be true or or not as much? Yeah, for certain niches, I would certainly agree with that or even trending topics like that. It's almost like you have to be first to market real quick with a shirt as soon as Trump says something, you know, crazy, like you said. But I also think it, this is a very new platform. Uh, Merch by Amazon has been around for about two and a half years, almost three. And yeah. when you compare that to a lot of other types of I guess side hustles or online things like blogs and things like that, they all have way more age than than Amazon, uh, Merch by Amazon. So I think it's still new. I think it's more saturated, of course, than it was two years ago. But I think there's still a lot of room. I mean, Amazon is, they're a giant. They get a lot of traffic. So I, I think the, the platform is only growing from here. And not to mention, they're venturing out from apparel and going into other actual merchandise. And I think that was their plan all along. You know, they recently started the Pop Sockets, which have been a really big seller for me. And there's, you know, news that they might be going into cell phone cases and a lot of other types of accessories like that. Okay. So a, a Pop Socket is a little thing that sticks on the back of your phone and turns it into a kickstand or? It definitely isn't. I definitely had to Google what the heck those were myself uh, when they announced that. I was like, what the heck is a pop socket? But yeah, that's what they are. And just it gives you a better grip or you can put it down, like you said, as a uh, stand on your phone. Is it just a checkbox like in your merch listing to say, okay, I want this also available on a pop socket? No, that would be very easy, but it's actually a whole different dimension (laughs) in size and it's a whole different upload. So just to give you an idea, recently I um, so bulk up for Halloween I just did about 50 to 60 Halloween designs on my account. 
And I had to put all those up to shirt. And then afterwards, I had to also put a bunch of them up to pop sockets, the ones that looked, you know, good on pop sockets as well. I imagine there's an 80-20 to all of this, but you have to upload everything to find out what what's going to be the 20% that actually sells. Yeah, there is. And that's the other uh, thing about this is for some people, they've taken that to the next level and just kind of throw everything up there. And, and then you see some quality kind of going down. So my model has been, you know, I want to put a lot of designs up there, but I want them to be, you know, quality. I, I don't want to put up 100 designs per day and only 10 of them are actually pretty good quality that might sell. So that was the next question of like, okay, how many d- designs are you actively coming up with each day? How do you come up with a new design? Like to do 10 a day is like, that's a serious creative endeavor. Yeah, 10 a day seems uh, hard. But I, I think one thing, Nick, that helps is, you know, scaling the design. So if you do some sort of design that, you know, says, you know, it's okay, I'm an engineer, then you can kind of scale that and say, it's okay, I'm a nurse. Uh, it's okay, I'm a teacher. <laughs> And you can, that's okay, what, okay. and that's what a lot of people do is they'll scale that way with, with the design. Relying a lot on Amazon and Etsy's algorithm and, you know, natural search results. But I did start a, I have two Etsy shops, one of which is kind of like Amazon where I just kind of throw everything up there. But then there's another one that's hyper-focused and it's niched down and it's really become a community on Facebook. I've created a page along with a group next to it and I got about 2,000 followers right now. Oh, cool. Yeah, mainly organic and ads. And I'll tell you what, it's like wildfire. Those people, they're very engaged. Uh, I'd say every post I put up is getting 20, 30, 50, 60 shares uh, every time I put them up. And a lot of times it's memes, it's photos. And I'm just, I guess I'm using the Gary Vee thing where I'm just kind of, you know, jabbing left and right with a lot of good content that they like. And then yeah. also throwing up some shirts here and there. And I, I just think that's a very good model to, to sell them on Facebook. Very cool. I like that one. Tell me about the Etsy syndication, because I think this is an area we haven't touched on before, where you still don't want to be physically like printing and shipping shirts yourself. So how does the fulfillment work on on Etsy? That's a good point. And also for any listeners that are listening to this and maybe want to jump onto the Merch by Amazon platform, I think everyone should know. And if you listen to the original episode, you would know that it is an invitation program. So you go on there, you apply, and you may not get in. You'll get an email saying you're approved, or you might get an email saying you're declined. And if you're declined, I've seen some people think like it's the end of the world and they can't do this side hustle, this, you know, business model, but you can. You can go to other websites and Etsy is one of those And with Etsy, you can use companies, fulfillment companies, to integrate via API so that you can integrate it similar like to Amazon, where you just really upload designs. If it gets purchased, that partner goes, they they print that shirt, they ship it out. And, you know, you can even pick a packing slip and and brand it yourself as if you're an Etsy seller making handmade uh, craft. So I've, I've had a good time on Etsy because I do have some of that contact with customers, whereas you don't get that with Amazon. So on Etsy, I use Printful. They're a great company, but they have many others out there that you can integrate with. Is it Printful.com? Yes, it is. That's really cool. I have to check that one out, at least for the best sellers. You might as well syndicate those over there. Is the cost structure similar to Amazon or do you just tack on a shipping charge or how does it work? Uh, it's pretty similar on um, Printful. The only difference is that whatever the shirt costs, let's say you put up a shirt and it's $10 cost, they would actually charge you link up a bank account and you they would actually charge you $10 out of your account. And after that, Etsy would then pay you. So let's say you sold the shirt for $20, Etsy pays you and then you get a deposit for 20. So the difference of 10 is the royalty you made there. Gotcha. That's very cool. So I really appreciate you sharing that, Flav. That's a cool way to 
you know, diversify off of Amazon for one, but also to reach new people. Like I think in a lot of ways, Etsy shoppers are perhaps a different audience than, than Amazon shoppers. So very cool. Uh, Flav, again, uh, sidebusinesslaunch.com slash merch. If you want to learn more about, uh, you know, designing shirts specifically for merch uh, from Flav, let's wrap this thing up with your number one tip for Side Hustle Nation. Whatever side hustle you're looking to do, if maybe you're listening to this and you're not sure what you want to do, make sure it fits your skill sets and, you know, it fits that long term, you know, I can see myself doing this, you know, long term and jump right in. If you find something you like to do, kind of like I've done with merch, you have to be all in and, and not get that shiny object syndrome. Just go in, max it out, do your best and, and results will come once you go all in on it. I love it. Well, very cool, man. Again, sidebusinesslaunch.com slash merch. And uh, we'll catch up with you soon. All right. Thank you, Nick. My third guest is an online teacher, an online professor for a few different colleges. She also does field inspections for different companies, but was looking for another income stream to supplement those. PJ Edwards had heard about loan signing last year on the show, but it was Brian Schooley's story about becoming a loan signing agent on episode 286 that inspired her to give it a shot. I learned about loan signing and I kind of tossed back and forth with it for about a year, just wondering if I could do it. And then I said, well, go ahead. I mean, what do you have to lose? And so I went into it and uh, I started doing what basically Mark Wills said to do in through his loan signing system and it actually worked and I'm, I'm doing pretty good at yeah. it. I'm not going too much into it right now because I still have my online teaching, but it's a great supplement and it has really good potential for full-time income. Did you already have your notary license or was that something that you had to go out and get before uh, be, either before taking Mark's course or before doing your first signings? When I found out about the loan signing course, that's when I signed up for my uh, notary commission. What was that process like? So you're in the state of Texas. What was that process like for you? I went online to the state website under the notaries, and I basically just uh, submitted an application. The application had a fee to apply for a notary as well as the bond. And I basically became a notary on that day. But uh, errors and omissions insurance is an absolute must. So I had to apply for that separately. Okay. The notary license fee and the insurance, what were you looking at in terms of startup costs? To sign up to become a notary, it was about a little over $80, maybe $85. I went through the American Association of Notaries. I, I can't recall how much it cost for my errors and omissions, but I do know it was under $200 for four years. Oh, for four years? Yes. Tell me about your first signings. So you go through this, uh, go through the course, you learn all about the loan documents. And then is it really is like people make it out like it's just as simple as getting a text message or you sign up for these signing services and then they send you a text. Like, do you want this signing? What was it really like? Well, um, I was given a list of different signing services to sign up with in the course along with uh, ideas on how to approach title office, title companies and loan officers, what have you. I tried approaching title officers, uh, loan companies, and that was a little bit tougher, but I do have one that I'm signed up with, and that one is working out very well. As far as the signing companies, I just basically signed up for all of them, and it is kind of like field inspections in that you sign up with them, you get qualified with them, and they do send you assignments 
through your email or through your text. And you basically just have to be the first one to respond to it because they, they respond to a number of different people in the network and you just have to be the first one to get to it. Okay. And you've got a pretty flexible schedule. So you were able to jump on some of those? Yes. I have my phone on me at all times because I don't want to miss any. And um, I mostly do my online teaching at night. So I have most of the day just to poke around and do what I want to do. And I choose to do the loan signings and as well as the field inspections from time to time. How many have you done um, at this point signings? I've done seven so far. And I have about five more lined up this week and continuing to sign up with more companies to get more work in. Those seven signings, if you don't mind sharing, like the revenue from that or your revenue share from that? Well, some of them I received from the title company that I signed up with, and they pay about 150 per signing sometimes a little bit more depending on how many pages. And then with the signing companies, the lowest I've received is $40 for about a 20 to 40 page document up to about $100. Okay. So that's a pretty quick influx of cash because I imagine it's not taking hours and hours to go uh, and do these unless you got to drive, you know, halfway across Houston to, uh, to meet with a client. But, you know, to sign up, you know, really low overhead, really low startup costs, and to have seven signings right out of the gate paying 40 to 150 bucks, that's, uh, that's pretty inspiring. And you're seeing you've already got more lined up and you're thinking this could be a pretty cool way to supplement your income. Yes, definitely. I know that with the signing uh, agencies, it may fluctuate. You may get more one week and maybe less one week. But um my goal is to sign up with as many as possible so that those days in which I don't get a whole lot of signings, they will be made up for through the other companies. So I I would like a steady stream to come in. Sure. Sure. Did you have any crisis of confidence going to the first signing? Like, do I really know the paperwork or or anything like that? (laughs) Well, my first uh, signing, well, first couple was, uh, they were low modifications and they were only 20 pages. And I had a chance to go through those and talk with the uh, representative at the, the signing company. And he explained everything to me. So I didn't feel so bad or so nervous about it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, had, I also have experience through field inspections, going into people's homes, talking with them and um, going over paperwork with them in that aspect. So it kind of prepped me for this. So it wasn't so bad after all. I think the only thing that really scared me was the fact that I thought, well, what if I miss a page and what if I forget to stamp a page? But I'm really careful. I proofread and check over two or three times just to make sure. So, so far, everything is going well in that area. Anything unexpected on the loan signing side hustle that that surprised you so far? Not yet. I I have a feeling something's going to come up soon because all of my notary friends have, they've told their stories and um, so far so good right now. Every every person I've met, very friendly, very willing to uh, be cooperative and it's just great so far. So far so good. Well, I'm really happy to hear that you're taking action based on some of the stuff that you're hearing on the show. I mean, that's what it's really all about for me as, as the host. Very cool to hear PJ. Appreciate you joining me. Can we wrap this thing up with your number one tip for Side Hustle Nation? Whether it's loan signing or any other hustle, 
don't give up at it because what you're looking for, it may not happen right away. You just have to be persistent and you have to keep trying as many different avenues as possible until something happens. It's almost like a gamble, so to speak. It's a numbers game. So it's going to happen for you. You just have to stay persistent and keep pushing until you reach that success. Yeah. Amen to that. There is, what's that saying? You know, nine out of 10 small businesses fail. So just start 10. I, I feel like I hear some of that uh, persistence in uh, in your story here and in your advice. So PJ, really appreciate you joining me and uh, we'll catch up soon. Oh, thank you so much. I'm glad to be on the show. Thank you so much. If you want to learn more about the loan signing side hustle, definitely check out episode 286 with Brian Schooley and actually with Mark Wills as well. He's the creator of the loan signing system course. He's uh, put together a special offer for Side Hustle Show listeners. So I'll link that up in the show notes for this episode at SideHustleNation.com slash 300. If you travel a lot for work or for vacation, you might be familiar with that feeling you get knowing you're leaving your space unused for long periods of time and you're still paying for that privilege. But hosting on Airbnb means you don't have to leave your home sitting empty when you're away. Being an Airbnb host isn't just a way to earn some extra cash. It's a chance to share your space and make a guest's vacation all the more memorable. You might be thinking, eh, maybe my place isn't the right fit, but don't write it off just yet. Your potential Airbnb might be right in front of you. Whether it's a spare room or even your entire home, there's an opportunity waiting. Airbnb turns your home into a practical and even profitable venture. We just got back from a family trip to Hawaii where we stayed in a great Airbnb, but our place back home could have been a highlight to somebody else's travels, and we could have used the extra cash to help pay for the trip. So if you're curious about hosting on Airbnb, find out how much your space could be worth by visiting airbnb.com slash host. Once again, that's airbnb.com slash host. Now, when I asked for volunteers for this episode in the Side Hustle Nation Facebook group, actually, I didn't say what it was for. I said I was just looking for people who'd take an action based on the content, sidehustlenation.com slash FB, if you're not already a part of that community. In any case, the winner of that thread, at least in terms of the likes and wows that it received, definitely got a wow from me, was Nate Woodard, who posted that he and his wife, Ashley, are on track to sell $700,000 worth of products on Amazon this year. So I had to call him up to learn more. We have a rental condo uh, that was our first home together. When we moved out of that, we decided to make it a rental. And one of the tenants that uh, had applied, he was a big Amazon seller. At the time, we didn't even know what that actually meant. But during the screening process, uh, let's just say his total income kind of intrigued us. He was doing very well for himself. Uh, so after uh, seven or eight months of living there, you know, we had chatted a few times. He asked me if I wanted to be a shopper for him, you know, like, Ron Grant talked about this uh, in his first podcast um, back three or four years ago, but for doing it for online arbitrage as opposed to retail arbitrage. Ryan Grant was first on the show in episode 61, and we did a Where Are They Now? look into his Amazon FBA business, which had grown considerably in episode 260. At what point did you transition from shopping for him to shopping for yourselves? So we had done that for about six or seven months, and decided I wanted to get more into the FBA game, but I didn't go to him. I'm not really sure why, but I started Googling, you know, how to do Amazon. And one of the podcasts I found was, was yours, Nick. And it was that episode with Ryan Grant. And that was one of the primary things that made me just go out and take action. 
Yeah, that's really cool to hear, especially on the online side. The retail arbitrage didn't make sense to me. I was like, how have the Walmart employees not heard of this? Like, how is this even possible? Then I went out and did it myself and was like, well, sure enough, there are deals to be found. There is profit to be found in these aisles. But the online stuff with all the software and everything these days, that seems even harder to do. So can you give a breakdown of how it works? And I won't ask you to reveal your sources, but maybe your sourcing process for finding profitable products? We actually started doing retail arbitrage very, very slowly. And then in about September of last year, I had lost my job. We were kind of at the point where it was, do I find another nine to five job or do we really dive right into this Amazon thing headfirst? We knew how to do online arbitrage. We realized the potential in it right away. And at that same time, it happened to be about a week after I lost my job, our tenant told us he knew about a guy who was looking to sell his established and very ungated storefront. So he had lost interest in the Amazon thing and it just wasn't for him anymore. So we decided to negotiate with him about for about two weeks and we closed on it on November 1st. And that's really when we dove deep into the online arbitrage aspect of FBA. What was included in the sale? It was just his storefront, but the advantage that it gave us was that it was ungated from a lot of the categories. I believe in a couple of the FBA episodes on the podcast, the guys talked about how, you know, a lot of the really good products you just can't sell. It's gotten worse over the years. You know, 2014, it wasn't too bad. 2015 and 2016, they kind of started gating more and more to stop the counterfeits and the knockoffs and everything from China and, you know, just, just bad sellers in the space. This guy, he, he had a, a store that was basically grandfathered in and we were able to take advantage of that and sell those really profitable, you know, high-end items. Right in the start of Q4 last year. Okay, nice. So we ramped up really quickly then and then kind of put the brakes on it in the beginning of this past year so that we could really sit down and take a better accounting of where our money was going, where it was coming in. And I mean, we made mistakes, obviously, but nothing that really, really hit us hard. Yeah, there's a lot of moving parts in this business and cash flow to keep track of and inventory in probably half a dozen different warehouses going out all around the country, all around the world. Oh, yeah. Did that purchase include any inventory that the guy still had sitting around or was it just just the account itself? No significant amount of inventory. I think there was about $1,000 worth of inventory in there. And we handled a few returns that came back for him. But other than that, it was it was a very clean sale. It was very easy to manage. It had good performance history, no negative marks on it. So we really lucked out in that regard. So Q4 last year, you take over this guy's account, and now you got to start filling it with your own inventory. Yeah. What kind of sourcing criteria are you looking for? Can you give me a ballpark of what you're looking for in terms of margin or in terms of sales rank? Sales rank depends on the category that you're looking in because there's some categories where we won't buy over 20,000 sales rank and there's others where we'll buy up to a 200,000 sales rank. Um, generally, if it's in the top 1%, we'll look at it. If it's in the top 0.01%, it's something that we'll try and get as many as we can. For ROI, we're, we try to stay around 20%. If we know we can push it out immediately and a low chance of return, other things like that, we'll take slightly less, but that doesn't happen very often. 20% meaning I'm going to spend $100 on inventory and turn that into 120 Right. Yeah. So you're left with $20 profit after all is said and done. Yeah. All the shipping fees and Amazon mm -hmm. seller fees and stuff like that. 
Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And the, the Amazon fees usually are, I think for us, they're, they've been between 18 and 20%. We sell electronics and the commission, the Amazon charges for electronics is a little bit lower. I think it's only 8% where some categories are 12, 15, I think books are maybe even 20%. So, you know, selling in a, a smaller commission category really helps us kind of meet those ROI numbers. Okay. Is there software that you're using to source the stuff or... I'm curious. <laughs> like, it seems like the internet, like the transparency, the you know the e- market efficiency theories would kind of drive every store to a similar price, but you're able to find gaps yeah. the, and significant enough gaps where there's margin to be made. We just started to look into tactical arbitrage, uh, arbitrage and use that um, recently. I think I used it in a period of time where there just weren't a lot of sales going on, and that was the feedback that I read on the website for that that couple of weeks as well. But I think that one of the big things that helps us is that we're willing to put a little bit more cash into our inventory up front so that you know it cuts out some of the competition. Higher price electronics, not everyone's going to be willing to put five hundred dollars, a thousand dollars into an item right up front, especially if they're just starting out. That helps us a lot. Yeah, you've got to have some confidence that it's gonna move. Right. That's what the best sellers ranking do. It ranks the products. If it's at a certain ranking, you know it's selling. Yeah, that was my bad on some of the um some of the retail arbitrage purchases. It was like, oh, it's a screaming deal. Oh, there's no sales rank listed in the app. I'm I'm sure it's fine. And then you Nate will tell you about our first retail arbitrage. <laughs> yeah, I, I believe that's a rite of passage that everyone goes through. I think the first thing I ever bought on retail arbitrage was um Realtree camouflage sleeveless Marvel superhero shirts and it <laughs> for $3. Was a, for, yeah. I bought them for $3 and they were selling for, well, they were priced at 20. They weren't necessarily selling at 20, but you know, I'm like, Oh yeah, this is, I'm going to make a killing on this. And you know, I bought like 10 of them and they eventually sold, but you know, I, I guess there are people out there that want real tree camouflage Marvel superhero cutoffs, but uh, <laughs> you know, it's, that was before we knew about bestsellers rank and, you know, that type of analysis to do before purchasing. Yeah, you never know. Well, so that's interesting to hear the top 1% of a category. It seems it's such a long tail on Amazon that, you know, I'm yeah. not even going to mess with the 99%. There's enough business in the top 1% that that is, is enough for me. I probably wouldn't touch anything that is even 1.5%. You know, there's just millions of things for sale on Amazon. Each category is just saturated with just so many different items. It's it's really not hard to find those 1% type items. If, if you're looking and scouring the websites that, that you go to and, you know, looking at their weekly uh, circulars, their weekly email ads, those types of things, if you're, if you're just scouring the right places, you're, you're going to find things that sell very well. What's the logistics side of this? Are you having this stuff sent straight to Amazon? Is that even an option or does it come to your house first and you got to package it up? You know, I've heard that you can have Amazon prep some stuff. I don't think, I think that's more for a wholesale aspect of it. But no, we actually started with a prep center in April after last November when we came home from Thanksgiving and had $5,000 worth of electronics on our front door (laughs) and another 10,000 in our living room. But we kind of decided right then and there that one of the first things we would do at the end of Q1 in 2018 was get right into a prep center. So we now have everything we buy sent to a prep center. They inspect it, match it up to the ASIN that we have listed. 
put any labels on it. We don't have any other prep really other than labeling that we need for ours. We're not doing bundles or anything like that. Um, So it's very, very simple for them. They send it out the door usually within 48 hours out to the Amazon FBA warehouse. Okay. And that's important because the sooner you can get there, the sooner you can turn your money over and the sooner your your sales rank is accurate. (laughs) Because it's like, well, yes, yes. we're we're relying. Yeah. Especially in Q4 when, you know, things are just very volatile, you know, your price will shoot up and then shoot back down. Uh, we may do start to do some fulfillment ourselves in Q4 for really hot products, but right now the prep center is working great for okay. us. It's such a bargain. I mean, you're outsourcing your kind of low value, low dollars per hour work. And you know that the person, you lose a little bit of control over doing some of the work yourself, but they do a good job. And, you know, it's not incredibly difficult. We did it for our, ourselves for a while to learn the process. And then, you know, that was one of the first things that we decided we were definitely going to take off our plate. But I will say, if you're going to get into FBA, you need to learn the shipment process side of it. You need to learn how to package your products up and send them in. I wouldn't advise anyone to outsource that immediately. Aside from the Realtree camouflage Marvel misstep, which sounds like it was only, you know, 30 bucks uh, into it. You know, any other... Oh, we made money on it. <laughs> we made money. It just took a lot of time. It took a long time to turn over. We made like 30 bucks. Yeah. Any other disasters or purchases that have kind of flopped? Oh my goodness. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, Bitcoin shot up earlier this year. Oh, yeah. And so we had bought a ton of computer components related to Bitcoin and we definitely made more, a lot more money than we lost on it. By the tail end, we had a bunch of inventory that, you know, we paid almost $1,000 for. We probably ended up selling them for, what, $700 a piece? $700. Oh, like, uh, like mining equipment type stuff? Paper. Yeah. Like just processors and graphics cards and, you know, things okay, that okay. the miners were using. Yeah. Gosh, interesting. <laughs> That's, yeah, I can imagine. It's like normally not that volatile, but based on what it was being used for, yes. Yeah. Right. Well, they say in a gold rush, the only people making money are the people selling shovels. And we thought we were selling shovels. Uh, and we, we sold a lot of shovels. We sold a lot of shovels. We, but. we were left with uh, quite a few shovels left at the, <laughs> when, when the rush ended. Well, very cool. I mean, the online stuff definitely appeals to me because, uh, you know, especially with a couple kids in the house, the time spent to be trolling down the aisles of Home Depot and, and Walmart just yeah. isn't what it once was. So I think this you guys have, have stumbled on a pretty cool and sounds like a pretty lucrative business uh, as well. So Nate and Ashley have offered up, uh, they don't have a website yet, but they've offered up an email address, fbaabroad at gmail.com uh, if you want to get in touch and uh, ask them questions, see what they're up to. Let's wrap this thing up with your guys' number one tip for Side Hustle Nation. My number one tip would be know what you want from your side hustle. You know, up front, establish your your why. Why am I doing this? Uh, use that to motivate yourself to learn what you can and to kind of help carry you when things get tough because they definitely will. But you'll kind of come out the other side having a better appreciation and a better understanding of why you persevered and why you went through it. Absolutely. What's What's your why, if you don't mind me asking? For us, it's about our lifestyle. Amazon, it doesn't just allow me to have a more flexible work schedule and him in the future, but it also allows us to have a more flexible location. For us, we value our experiences more than we value things, which is really funny considering we're selling things to people who <laughs> probably don't need them. And so it'll, it just lets us live a more meaningful life. We plan to move around with this as much as we possibly can. We're not trying to take this to the massive level that uh, some people have. Sure. No, it's it's got to be a lifestyle business or the business has to support your lifestyle. Ashley, did you have a number one 
tip of your own or do you want to stick with the establish your why? I'm on Nate's same page here with Nate. Establish your why. It's going to help to motivate you through everything that you do, even when it gets hard. So true. Well, very much appreciate you guys joining me and we'll catch up with you soon. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Nick. It's great to be on. Thank you. And last but certainly not least is my friend Amy Hebden from PaidSearchMagic.com. She's a search marketing pro and turned those skills from her day job into a fast-growing agency that is supporting both her and her husband. I've been in doing paid search for quite a while, since 2004. And so naturally, when you do something for a while, people will reach out to you and connect with you and ask you to help them. I didn't necessarily know how to take advantage of it. It either seemed like it was too much or I didn't want to figure out how to do a proposal because I didn't know how to build those. Because as an employee, you don't, you're not necessarily on the building the proposal and the contract side. So I would kind of, depending on the size of the project, I just either wouldn't take it or I would take it and work on it as a kind of a freelance basis. But I really wanted to figure out if there was an opportunity here and if I could kind of scale that up. And it sounds like that's exactly what you've done over the last few years. Yeah. So in November of last year, so it's been about 10 months right now, I left my full-time job and have been doing exclusively working on Paid Search Magic, which is the company that I built. And so this is just something I'm doing full-time now, along with my husband. That's really exciting stuff. And I remember seeing, so Amy, not necessarily inspired by any specific episode of the show, she was actually a part of kind of like this pilot program that we that we ran in like the fall of 2015, a, mm-hmm. a 30 day side hustle challenge type of thing. And it was like this light bulb is going off. Like you sent me the screenshot of the of the comment it was like, I think there might be some demand for this type of uh, pay per click advertising service. I think it's really the curse of knowledge, right? Like I was doing this and so it didn't really occur to me that other people couldn't figure it out or that it might be something that'd be interesting to other people. I just kind of thought, well, this is what I'm I'm hired to do and that's it. It didn't occur to me that this is something that actually was in high demand, which is really embarrassing to me looking back. But that's where I was at the time, just trying to take a step forward and see if maybe I can make something more of it than what it currently was. We're kind of getting our feet wet with a lot of this. Like I'm learning more about authority marketing than I ever knew because as someone who was doing this professionally, I didn't know really how to put myself out there at all. So going on podcasts, I spoke at MozCon a few months ago. I'm just doing more things to get my own name out there. And I think a lot of your audience can relate to this, but if people know, like, and trust you already, those sales calls are a lot easier than if someone is just looking for anyone, <laughs> anyone generic to be a service provider for them. You get a lot better leads and they're a lot easier to sign and a lot happier to work with you than if you're just saying, hey, I can do something along with everyone else. It's almost a commodity. Absolutely. Tell me about the speaking gig at MozCon. So this is Moz.com, huge name in the SEO world. This is like the World Series of, of marketing events here. So <laughs> how, did, how did you get on the stage there? I pitched. <laughs> so they have a, a few spots reserved for what they call community speakers. So basically, you don't pitch to them, they find you. And that's true for most of who's speaking. But then they have six spots that are available for people who have maybe a different take on what's going on that's related or adjacent to the industry. And I pitched and I was one of the people that was selected, which was awesome because I don't have anything specifically to say about SEO. That's not my zone of genius. But since paid search is, I was able to have that platform and talk about how paid search can work together with SEO. And basically what my topic was, was getting rid of marketing silos, which is something I've experienced a lot 
as I've worked as an employee is that, you know, you're trying to do your thing and then someone else is trying to do their thing. And sometimes there's a lot of clashing. And so just being able to all work together and get on the same page and everyone wins. That was really the subject of the talk. Yeah. Coming in there with a unique angle, not just another SEO talk that right. that probably made it stand out uh, from the rest. Tell me about your efforts on clarity.fm. This is a, a by the minute consulting service where people can call you up and, and ask questions. I don't even remember how I got started on clarity.fm. At some point, I created a profile. I've heard about it somewhere. It might even have been from Side Hustle Nation. I don't know. But somehow I created a profile and it did nothing. It just sat there. And that was, I didn't know what else to do. And then I had read a blog post on Side Hustle Nation that said, hey, here's how you optimize your profile. So I was like, well, I'll give it a shot because the idea of getting paid without having to figure out the invoicing side of it, or I think, you know, to, to my situation, I was just giving people free advice because I felt uncomfortable charging them. Yeah. And so no, to be able to people feel that way. Yeah. And so like to have this, this kind of third party platform where I would show up as the expert and someone else was paying them the platform and I could just set their rate and they agreed to the rate and they paid the rate and it was by the minute. And so if we went the, you know, if they wanted more time that they'd get more time. It sounded really appealing to me, but I just didn't know how to make it work. So I had put my profile up, nothing happened. Then I read this Side Hustle Nation article about how to optimize it. So I followed those directions and like instantly, it's like one of those weird things where you do something a little bit different and all of a sudden you get demand. So I had people who are reaching out. And the thing that I learned about Clarity is that most people aren't just looking for a one-off call. Most people are vetting you to do projects or to, to do something more. They just want to make sure that you're the right fit. So if you show up and provide value and you show that you're the right fit, you're not just getting that one-time consulting fee. You're also can, it can lead to much bigger and better things. And I've got a coaching client that I help with marketing right now that our relationship started on clarity. And it's been more than a year and a half that I'm still helping him with, you know, the biz dev side of, of what he's working on, but what we never would have met outside of clarity. Yeah, that's very cool to use it as not just, a, okay, I'm going to get paid for this call, but almost as a lead generation service for longer term clients. Right. And the secret to that, and this is what I think you said in the article, was that you have to make it really clear what the outcome is going to be. It's not just, oh, I do this thing, but here's the problem I can help you solve. And once I started thinking of it that way, uh, it was a lot easier for people to say yes to that and to want to buy into the service. All right. Well, we will link up your clarity profile in the show notes for this episode at com <laughs> slash 300. Anything else, Amy? I'm curious about the moment or the decision to say, okay, now I have some confidence, like people have been paying me to do this stuff on the side. But it's another thing to take the leap and go full in and say, okay, I'm going to lose the day job. I'm going to be a full-time consultant, freelancer, agent for hire type of person. Yeah, those are two very different things. So for me, it was a little bit dissatisfaction with being an employee. And I think a lot of people can relate to this too, that you're giving your employer your best work. You're showing up you know, with your best ideas, your best energy. And it doesn't really matter how well you do. You're kind of salary capped and growth capped, and you're not getting to choose the clients that you're doing that work for. And you just don't have all the autonomy you want. And to be honest, I had a lot of autonomy in my job. And it was something that I was there for quite a while because I enjoyed it, but I was really ready for the next step in, I guess, total autonomy, right? Not just partial autonomy. So for me, I was director of paid media. I was working from home 100% remote. Like I think that's something that younger me would have really aspired to. But even in that position, I thought, okay, I just I need more. And so what I was trying to do was build up enough of kind of moonlighting clients that I, I could say, okay, I'm, this is the point I'm ready to go. But what happened was my full-time job was just 
kind of sucking so much energy from me that it was really hard for me to focus on doing other things because I was just focused on that. So I ended up just leaving, just setting a date and leaving and kind of jump in the net will appear. I thought that I might just be living off savings and eating ramen. It so happened that the first month of having my own thing, we actually brought in 18,000 in revenue. So not bad for month one. (laughs) Do you think it was just that fire of, you know, not having anything to fall back on? Or what do you think accounted for that? Well, it was definitely, I mean, I picked up some clients, some work, you know, including from my agency, uh, just so happened that they needed me to continue working for them a little bit. I worked for them. And then I also had some other things come up. But yeah, it's it's not something that I would go around and sell an ebook of follow this strategy. (laughs) But it is something that, that worked out really well for me. So I just didn't happen to be struggling. There have been leaner months since then when I was, you know, again, figuring out how do you do inbound? How do you get people to to notice you and pay attention to you? And that's something I'm still working on. But I think just being ready to say, okay, I can do this and I'm going to make it work is an important step in getting to that point. Very cool. Well, paidsearchmagic.com is where you can find more about Amy. And of course, like I said, we'll link up that clarity profile if you want to give her a call, pick a brain at sidehustlenation.com slash 300. Let's wrap this thing up with your number one tip for Side Hustle Nation. Don't wait for anyone to give you permission. I always think that the market is already saturated, that everything that's going to happen has already happened. I'm always too late, but that is never true. There's so much future in the future that getting started now and getting started on your own terms is the best way to make something happen for you. Yeah, I'm in the same boat. Like, oh, everybody's already done it. Every good idea has already been, you know, thought of. A year from now, you're going to wish you started today. Like it keeps, it keeps happening. So well, in 2004, people were saying, you know, Google ads or AdWords at the time, it's already been hacked. It's already saturated. There's not room for anyone more. And I, I believed it stupidly. <laughs> if I could look back, I, there would have been such an opportunity for me to get more involved at the beginning, like training and teaching people. But I just thought everything has already been done. There's no room for another voice. And then, you know, 10 years after you, someone comes along and they're brand new and then they're teaching. You're like, oh, why didn't I do that earlier? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I think of there's probably half half a dozen niches I've I've been there on. So, Amy, really appreciate you joining me. Always exciting to see what you're up to and and how you've grown over the past few years. So, thanks again, and we'll catch up with you soon. Thanks so much. All right, my top three takeaways from this special 300th edition of the Side Hustle Show. Number one is to give people the chance to do business with you. In Preston's case, he proactively approached sponsors. He made an offer to his email subscribers. Flav figured out how to get his most popular merch listings on another popular marketplace. PJ signed up for all the loan signing services she could find. Amy finally gave herself permission to take on and get paid for the freelance work people were already asking her for help with. So I think I've got some homework from all five of these guests, and a lot of it surrounds giving people the chance to do business with you. Takeaway number two is to delegate where it makes sense. Nate and Ashley found the prep center was better and more efficient at doing all the packing and labeling necessary to get their inventory ready for Amazon. I think I've been okay at delegating, but still have some control-free tendencies and, and definitely have some room for improvement on the letting go front. That's actually the topic of next week's episode, outsourcing, hiring, virtual assistance, but operating on your highest value tasks and bringing in help for other elements of your business. That's so it seemed to be a common theme from these five uh, entrepreneurs. And takeaway number three is to learn as you go. I'm really inspired by these stories for the results that they've achieved, but also by the attitudes. In almost every case, there's some pretty stiff 
competition out there. And that's just going to be a fact of life. There are no monopolies, but that didn't stop these guys from taking action anyway. They didn't start out necessarily as experts or authorities, but they studied and they learned and they became experts over time. They practiced, they got better, and they're now helping tons of people and making great income as well. That may be one of the most important motifs from 300 episodes of the show, to learn as you go. Don't wait for all the planets to align before you get started. I mean, if I'd done that, I'd still be sitting in my truck trying to build up the nerve to knock on that very first door. I love it. What do you guys think? I didn't put the show together to pat myself on the back. Instead, I wanted to show that real people are getting real results, and you can do it too. SideHustleNation.com slash 300 for all the links and resources mentioned, and I hope to hear from you on how the podcaster blog has made an impact on your life and finances. That's it for me. Thank you so much for tuning in, especially for this marathon-length episode. Until next time, let's go out there and make something happen, and I'll catch you in the next edition of The Side Hustle Show, where we're breaking down outsourcing best practices from someone who's hired more than 300 freelancers. I'll see you then. Hustle on. Thanks for listening to The Side Hustle Show at www.sidehustlenation.com. Hey, you still with me? Speaking of making something happen, you can wear a reminder of that call to action, of that slogan, with the new official Side Hustle Nation t-shirt. Check it out at mshshirt.com, msh for make something happen. There's actually no Side Hustle Nation branding on it, it just says make something happen, mshshirt.com. Cheers.